Our sermon today comes from Hebrews. We'll be looking at chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Now, last week, Philip preached the passage prior to this one, and we heard how foolish it would be to sell our spiritual inheritance for a single meal like Esau did. He didn't count the cost of rejecting the promises of God because he was only concerned with his earthly existence. He craved a meal, but he refused the coming feast. In other words, he counted the grace of God a light thing. And so it seems his fate was to miss out on that grace forever. But the pastor who wrote to the Hebrews knows that we all experience hunger pains that tempt us to do the same thing as Esau, that promise of Relief in the here and now can lead people to really or functionally renounce the faith, the faith that we saw all throughout chapter 11 of Hebrews. So for the Hebrew Christians then, they, they could enjoy earthly peace and freedom from persecution as long as they renounced Jesus. Christians today, we today may not face overt persecution like they were facing, but we know the allure of a belly full of the good things of this life. We know how that can dull our appetite for the better things that God has for his people, both now and in the age to come. C.S. Lewis, who understood his own tendency to run after lesser things, put it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to, to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. There's really only one thing that can protect us from the kind of short-sightedness seen in Esau where we might settle for mud pies. And that one thing is for God to remove our ignorance and show us what he means by his version of a holiday at the sea. What he has given us in Christ. And that's the grace of this passage. Here, the pastor reminds his friends and reminds us about where we are and where we will be. Because in Christ, we inhabit a reality far, far different than the one in which we sometimes think we live. And showing us this new reality that's saturated with the glory of God, he protects us from being short-sighted. Once again, he urges us to press on with our eyes on Jesus, responding well to that reality he reveals to us. As we come to listen to God's word, let's pray together this prayer from the poet Christina Rossetti. Lord Jesus, by the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, purge our eyes to discern and contemplate you. Until we attain to see as you see, judge as you judge, choose as you choose, and having sought and found you, 
to behold you forever and ever. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen. Read with me. Follow along in your Bibles from Hebrews 12, starting in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Let us, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to consider this passage today using a simple approach. First, we want to see the new reality in which believers live since Christ has come. That reality is pictured for us in the first half of this passage in verses 18 to 24. And then second, in verses 25 through 29, we'll consider how we are supposed to respond in this new reality that we live in as followers of Jesus, because the reality in which we live requires a response. And so first, let's look at the picture the pastor paints for us in verses 18 through 24. And the good news of this passage emerges immediately when you compare verses 18 and 22. Look at them. Those contrasting phrases, you have not come to and but you have come to, are meant to generate in us a clarifying sense of true reality. The grammar itself underscores this, emphasizing that believers presently and continually inhabit a new place. In other words, anyone who clings to Christ by faith is not out Mount Sinai, but rather is standing among the blessed citizens of Mount Zion. Let's un Let's unpack that a little bit, because although Mount Sinai's name does not appear in 
verses 18 to 21, the pastor is summarizing Israel's experience there to make the point that there is not where you are. But why is he driving that point home? Well, let's think about it. As God revealed himself to his people that he had just rescued from Egypt, displaying his grace and his kindness to them, at Sinai, he revealed himself in his holiness, showing them that he is set apart from sinful humanity and therefore unapproachable so long as sin remains. Though it would have been possible for the people to touch the mountain, as it mentions in verse 18, God's word through Moses forbade the people from doing so on pain of death. But if any of them had initially thoughts of sneaking up the mountain anyway to see God, the terror that accompanied God's descent onto the mountain put an end to that desire. Whereas earlier in chapter 19, Exodus 19, the people eagerly promised that whatever God said they would do to keep covenant with him. By this point in Exodus 20, as soon as they heard God's law and saw the fire and darkness and gloom and wind, they trembled. They trembled with the knowledge that they could not do what they had just promised to do. And so they begged not to hear God's voice directly again. It was enough. That scene was enough to make even Moses, God's faithful servant and mediator of the old covenant, made him tremble with fear. That's because Sinai is the place where the holiness of God strips bare all pretense and reveals our inadequacy. Sinai is the place where we know God in part. We see his holiness, but we know ourselves more fully. We see that our hearts don't work right. We see that our hearts don't love God as we ought to love him. And we don't love our neighbors as he commands. And we also know there, in the face of his holiness, we know that excuses, our excuses, aren't enough. As the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. At Sinai, in the presence of him who is holy, 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 no human being can stand on their own. Without Jesus, that is where you would stand now. And without Jesus, that is where you would stand one day in person before him who judges all according to his own holiness. But... If you have embraced Christ by faith, then even if the enemy accuses you or your own conscience accuses you, in Christ you have come to a very different place. And that is the true reality the pastor presses home in verses 22 through 24. In light of all that he has said up to this point in this letter about who Jesus is and what he has done for us, 
The writer of Hebrews wants you to know and rest in the reality that by faith in Jesus, you have come to a different place altogether. Listen. Listen as the pastor describes where you have come. Through Jesus, you have come to Mount Zion. That mountain in the heart of the promised land where God said he would make his name to dwell forever. Zion is no temporary place in the wilderness. It is the place where God and his people were meant to live together forever. And that is where you are now. And you have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That city that was sought by the patriarchs back in chapter 11. The city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That is where you are. The heavenly Jerusalem that John saw as a bride adorned for her husband, full of the glory of God and radiant like a perfect jewel. You have arrived already to that city, which is your true home, as you have embraced Christ by faith. And you are not in that city alone. With you are tens of thousands of the host of heaven gathered for the party that celebrates the Lamb who was slain to redeem a people for himself. That festal gathering he describes as nothing less than the party that began with the resurrection of Jesus. And will stretch into eternity. Yes, our full enjoyment of it will come only at our resurrection. When we sit down at the wedding supper of the Lamb. But do we not enjoy it already now in part? When we celebrate communion with our Lord and with each other. How sweet it will be when you and I get to celebrate that meal here together. But How much sweeter will it be when we eat it with our Lord himself, surrounded by the host of heaven? It is actually that communion with each other that the pastor points to next when he writes of coming to the assembly of the firstborn, who is Jesus, of course, the firstborn from the dead. Coming to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The assembly that he speaks of is the church, the true church. It is all those throughout the story of redemption who have put their faith and hope in God. Whether they were like Abraham, looking forward in faith to the promised Redeemer, or like us, looking back to Jesus who is that Redeemer. The pastor knows that there is only one people of God. And so, by faith in Jesus, you may rest in the reality that you are one of them. One of those enrolled in heaven. Because as a beloved child of God, your name is known to him. For it was he who chose you to be his own. Who planned for you to take your place with him from before the time that the world was made. The fact that you have come to God is what the pastor focuses on next. He is the same as he was at Sinai. and We know him to be the judge of all, and yet we come to him among the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So how is it that we can now approach him? His presence terrified his people at Sinai because they knew they could not keep covenant with him. They knew that he was holy. 
and they were not. And we know the same because we know we are no better than them. No, we have confident access to draw near to him because our Lord Jesus has kept covenant for us. He shed his blood to make atonement for our sin, to make us holy. Therefore, to you who trust in him, God says, there is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Or as we sang together already, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. And he has brought us nigh to God. Our coming to God through our Lord Jesus alone, by his blood, is the conclusion of this pictured reality. He says you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, for chapters and chapters, the pastor has been showing us what it means to have Jesus be our mediator, to be the one who stands between us and God in this new covenant. In Jesus, we have a better Moses, a better high priest, a better final sacrifice for sin. He is sympathetic with our weaknesses, but he is powerful to help. He tells us to put no confidence in ourselves, but he gives us full confidence in him. He shows us that, yes, following the Father may involve suffering. It may involve pain for now. And yet, in, because of him, we know that not even death is the end of the story because our Father is so lovingly committed to his promise that we will share in the life of Jesus our Lord forever. We know this because the blood of Jesus still speaks. His blood, once sprinkled to cover your sins and to cleanse your consciences, still speaks. And it speaks a better word than what Abel's blood said long ago when Cain killed his righteous brother. Back then, Abel's blood cried out from the ground to God for vengeance, for justice. His blood cried out, all is wrong, wrong, O Lord, make it right. But what is that better word that Jesus' blood speaks to us? His blood says to you, loved, forgiven, bought back, restored, secure. For the Hebrew Christians and for you, as you keep clinging to Christ by faith, as you keep repenting of sin and self-righteousness and pursuing a lived out faith following Jesus, you need not cower in fear because we are not living 
in a place of pre-redemption, but in the time of the gospel of Jesus, the time of redemption accomplished and applied, of promises fulfilled, of shadows replaced by substance, which is the flesh and blood Jesus raised from the dead. We know that just as Jesus is reigning already, but not yet fully, in the same way, the full experience of our new place in God's kingdom has not yet arrived. We know this. But even so, you are already there in Christ. In him you have not come to Sinai, but to Zion. Not to a place of terror, but to a celebration of joy. Not to separation, but to celebration. Not to condemnation but to welcome, not to death, but to life. As one writer puts it, the condition in which you live now and worship as Christian believers are not those of Sinai, but the conditions of heaven itself. And the certainty of this reality is exactly what requires a response from us. And to that response, the pastor turns in verse 25 and following. This is the second main point that we need to consider. How we are supposed to respond to the better word that Jesus' blood speaks. And he presents us with a negative and a positive response. Negatively, he says, we must not refuse him who is speaking. But positively, we must offer to God grateful all-filled worship. So first, we must not refuse him who is speaking. Briefly, the writer returns to his comparison of Israel at Sinai to believers in his day and ours. And because of the greatness of what God has revealed to us in Jesus, a far, far better self-revelation than God provided at Sinai, because of that, the pastor says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Back then, those who refused to embrace the Lord after Sinai did not escape his judgment. You can go back and read how those who rejected the God of grace discovered that death is all there is for those who reject the giver of life. But the pastor reminds us that a greater Final judgment is coming. He quotes the prophet Haggai in chapter 2, 6. He repeats God's promise that yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. He says a day of shaking will come when God removes what is temporary and only what is eternal remains. And so since God has given us a far better revelation in Jesus and because that day of shaking is coming, how much greater is the peril for those who refuse the voice of Jesus and his grace? There is a call here to examine our lives. Are we living with our ears and our hearts attuned to the voice of Jesus Am I privileging the voice of Jesus above all others, or, or have I become dull of hearing, distracted by other voices that may promise an easier, more comfortable, less cross-shaped life? Remember Esau. 
He traded an unshakable kingdom for a single meal. And in his attempt to save his own life, he spurned the word of God until it was too late. We must see to it that we don't do the same in some effort to keep control of our own lives or to escape what God has sent to us, even if it means suffering. Because although it is true what Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We must remember that Jesus is also the resurrection and the life. But if we hear what his blood still speaks, if you hear that today, that his blood still says, loved, forgiven, bought back, restored, secure, then why should we refuse him? For only in him do we have an unshakable king and an unshakable kingdom. As we cling to Jesus today, the assurance of what we have in him is the foundation for not only the avoidance of the negative, but the embracing of this positive response that the pastor invites us to live out. Because even after the day of shaking, we will enjoy our life in the city of God with the Lord and with each other. Therefore, he writes in verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. We are grateful because, as one writer puts it, this is a kingdom of joy, not of fear. And yet, he continues, God has not changed and needs to be approached with reverence and awe. That's why this chapter ends with the reminder that our God is a consuming fire. We must not approach him presumptively like the sons of Aaron did long ago when they worshipped him according to their own ideas and were consumed. But I want you to focus on the connection between acceptable worship and being grateful. There's a strong connection there in the text. As our hearts well up with gratitude, it indicates that God receives that gratitude as part of our acceptable worship. He is pleased when you say to him, thank you. Coming to him through Jesus with reverence and awe, he says, is that proper response to the great salvation that God has revealed to us? Thankful worship includes what we are doing this morning, of course, as as you and I recount the story again and remember that it's all true. As we confess our sins together humbly, but experience God's merciful pardon. As we sing in awe and wonder at the grace and beauty of our Lord. In all these things, we declare the worth, the great worth of our God and Savior. And it's striking to think that our worship on earth this morning is happening along with the worship that is in heaven. But that great, grateful, awe-filled worship must not only exist on Sunday mornings. 
Every facet of our lives is an opportunity to display the loving kindness of our God and King. We are meant to pull something of our lives in the age to come into the present. Living today as citizens of heaven, even while we are on earth. We pray that each week as we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But if we pray that on Sundays, then let us work toward that end on Monday when we go into work. Let us work toward that end on Tuesday as we raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Let us do that on Wednesday too as we think about how God might use us to meet the, meet, meet the needs of our neighbors. Let us do it on Thursday as we listen to a friend who seems to be forgetting what the blood of Jesus still says. Let's do it on Friday as we feast with our friends in the church, enjoying here and now a foretaste of the age to come. Let us do this on Saturday as we gratefully worship the Lord in our play, delighting in the good things even of this life, yet without becoming overly enamored with them. For we know we should not overly love something that one day will be shaken out of existence. In the coming weeks, we're going to consider more about what this means because this idea of grateful worship infusing all of life is going to be fleshed out for us in chapter 13. But for now, though, I want to recognize that for some of you, you're in a season when this kind of grateful worship seems easy. The sun seems to shine over your life right now, and the good news is easy to believe. But for some of you, you're finding it hard to believe that this is true. The reality that you see in your family or you feel in your heart seems to be at odds with the place the pastor says that we have come. And whether it's the pain of sin in your life that you have committed or what has been done to you, Maybe some pain or some sin is making you fearful that this reality that is pictured is really a false reality. If that's you, let me encourage you once again to fix your eyes on Jesus. Remembering that he walked through the valley of the shadow of death before you did. But he kept going for the joy that was set before him. And that sure hope of resurrection life enabled him to endure even the cross. And so he can sympathize with you as you suffer. And yet he, in this word, holds his joy before your eyes. And his blood says again that he means to share his joy with you. I would encourage you, look at him again today and do the same thing tomorrow when it comes. That's where returning to this vision of true reality can help you because this passage shows us both where we are now and where God keeps us in Christ.
And in this greater holiday at the sea that God holds before our eyes, there are no mud pies, just a home saturated with his grace. A party that never stops. A place where God and his people enjoy life together as as it was meant to be in the beginning. He holds before our eyes a city of peace that will remain forever because the sun remains forever. A place where Jesus, our great high priest, whose blood will keep on speaking, Loved, forgiven, bought back, restored, secure. And so let's look to him together, living in light of the eternal realness that we have a king and we have a kingdom. And it's already in our midst because in Christ we are already there. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your word that shows us what is now and what will be. And because of it, as Paul said long ago, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self may be wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For we know that this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Lord, impress the reality of this hope on our lives so that we might listen and respond well to you. Open our eyes so that we might be more grateful than we are, more reverent, more full of awe at your great love for people like us. We offer up our grateful hearts to you now, Father, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, in whose name we pray. Amen.